Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. First Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. It says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So Peter, now of course Peter didn't put in chapter and verse, He's just, he just wrote a letter to the, to the uh, believers that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. Um, but uh, at some point the translators put in chapter and verse. And so at the beginning of chapter 2 we have a therefore, which means that it refers back to what was spoken in chapter 1 by Peter. And in chapter 1, Peter talks about those of us, because it includes us too, it's speaking to us, those of us who have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, those of us who have a heavenly inheritance awaiting us, and those of us who are called to live a life of holiness, just as God the Father is, is holy, Therefore, you get to chapter 2, therefore, we are to lay aside. And that word lay aside, it's like taking off your sweater or taking off an old stinky garment, whatever, to lay aside all malice. Now, today, uh, the definition for malice basically means to desire, you know, to have evil intent or desire to inflict injury or harm or suffering on another person. It's, it's evil intentions toward an individual. But the Greek definition is much more broader than just evil intentions toward an an individual. It includes that, but it also means um, uh, basically wickedness that is not ashamed to break the law, depravity, and basically all evil. So it's a lot more encompassing than that. So we're to lay aside all manner of malice. We're also to lay aside all manner of deceitfulness. You know, deceiving people, not, you know, telling half-truths, not being completely honest, you know, whatever manner of deceitfulness. We're, we're to lay that aside like an old garment. We're to lay aside hypocrisy, pretending to be something that we're not. We're to lay aside envy, and with envy, of course, that includes jealousy and, you know, just, just you know, uh, coveting what other people have. And then all evil speaking, and that basically means a lot of things. It means defaming someone uh, through backbiting, through slandering, through gossip, those things that harm someone's reputation. All those things, we're to lay those things aside like an old garment. Let's just take like an old stinky shirt that you've worn for three days in a row and it's starting to stand up by itself at night, you know, in the corner. Lay that thing aside. Um, And instead, he says... As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. You know, you think of a newborn baby, and of course, we have a, a grand, new grandson. He's about five months old. You guys have seen him, Jonathan, there. And, uh, you know, as, as a newborn babe, the only thing that he craves is his mother's milk. You know, you could set a Twinkie in front of him, and he wouldn't want a Twinkie or, you know, ice cream, chocolate ice cream, whatever. He, he wouldn't want He might grab it. You know, he's at the point now where he can grab things. But, um, but, you know, that's not what he wants. He wants his mother's milk. He wants that pure milk. And Peter is exhorting us 
as believers to once more crave the pure spiritual milk of the Word. And if you think about a baby, you know, every few hours, a baby craves more milk. You know, it's like, also, you know, a couple hours passes, all of a sudden they're crying again. It's like, what? You know, you check their diaper, their diaper's dry, you know. You, you check for any obvious signs of something that's causing distress. And quite often, it just turns out that they're ready for more milk. They're hungry again. And, and, and we're to have that, that continual hunger for God's Word, for the pure milk of the, of the Word. And, you know, it's not just when you and I are spiritual babes. Because, you know, I think about when, when you and I, maybe, maybe, you know, when you first became a believer in Jesus Christ, or maybe you, uh, you know, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, but at some point, you, you know, your faith became yours, you know, the faith of your parents or whatever. And all of a sudden now you're entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Or like in my case, you know, I, re- I, I rededicated my life to the Lord after giving my heart to the Lord a long time ago as a, as a youngster and then backsliding for many years. And then finally giving my heart back to the Lord at whatever that time was in your life. Do you remember how hungry you were for the Word of God? It's like, man, I was just just digging into the Word. I, I remember when, when I had done that, and I got stationed out in Minnesota, uh, up in Duluth, I would just grab my Bible, and I would go out, and I would just sit on the by Lake Superior on the sand there on, the, on Park Point, because that's where the Coast Guard station was, and I would just read the Bible. I got me a little pocket Bible so I could carry around with me. Man, I would just devour the Word. And you remember that feeling when you were like that? at some point in your walk? Hopefully it hasn't gone away. But if it has, today's encouragement is to go back to that time when you just hungered and craved for the spiritual milk of the Word. Why? The reason is that you may grow. It's for your growth as believers. You know, books, and I like reading books. I don't read too many because I don't have that much time. But books about the Bible, you know, they're okay to read. They're certainly, you know, edifying. Listening to teachings or radio programs about the Bible are okay. They're they're not bad. But you know what? If that's your steady diet, just books about the Bible, you listen to teachings about the Bible, whatever it is, when life gets difficult, those teachings, those books, they're not going to sustain you. The thing that's going to sustain you is the pure milk of God's Word, the basic elementary principles of God's Word that Jesus loves you. That, that, that you know, we're saved by grace. It's through faith that we're saved. You know, all these, the main principles of Jesus Christ, of our, of our faith in, in Christ, those are the things that are going to sustain you. And that's what you get from reading the Word of, the, the Word of God. Just simply going through the Scriptures. Now, unfortunately... Too many Christians, and I would even say too many churches, are malnourished. Their growth is stunted. Why? Because they only go for the sweets. You know, they only go for the, for the junk food of the world that the world has to offer. Things that temporarily please the palate, but they don't provide the spiritual nourishment to the person. So this morning, we could examine each one of our own hearts. And, you know, the Scriptures tells us often, examine your hearts. And maybe this morning, we need to examine our hearts. Do we crave reading God's Word? Do you find that you can't go very long before it's like, man, I haven't read the Word for a while. I've got to dig into the Word. You know, if that's you, that's great. If that's not you this morning, if you say, you know, that's, that's really not me, that's, the answer is no, then I'll just say this. Chances are great that you've been feeding on junk food. 
you know, if you, you know, say before dinner, me was growing up, you know, your mom would bake cookies or whatever, and she'd have it out, and you'd smell the cookies, and, you know, you'd get, you know, get home from school or get home from work or whatever, and it's like, there's a plate of cookies. You want those cookies? What would she always say to you? Don't eat those right now. You're going to spoil your appetite. They're for after supper, right? You know, something like that. Well, you know, if we just feed on the junk food, the stuff that tastes good and, that, you know, just it's pleasing to our palates and whatever, you're going to lose your appetite for the healthy things. You know, you're going to spoil your appetite. And it's the same with God's Word. If we're just digging in after things that are, you know, books about the Bible or, or teachings or, or just the junk food that's out there in the world, we're going to lose our appetite for God's Word. So Peter says here in verse 4, he continues and he says, Coming to him, he's speaking about Jesus, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Coming to him, that word coming, it's actually, and I'm not a really good, I'm not an English teacher, I'm far from being an English teacher, but uh, the word is a present participle. And what that means is, it, what the word means, coming to him, it's a, it's a continually coming to him. It's not like a once, you know, when you come to faith in Christ, you came to Jesus Christ, you, you know, you have this relationship with him, but it's continually coming to him. It also means coming to him closely, habitually, and in intimate association. We're, we're encouraged to just go to the Lord and, and spend time with him frequently and, in, you know, and in intimately in prayer and worship and just coming before his presence. He says, as to a living stone. Now that's kind of an interesting term, a living stone, because that's almost like a contradiction in terms, right? Stones aren't alive. Um, well, the Rolling Stones are alive, it's amazingly, but <laughs> they, sh- they don't look like they're alive, but they're alive. <laughs> but the living stone, you know, it's interesting that Jesus is described as the living stone because, you know, throughout the Bible, we serve a living God, we have what Peter described in chapter 1, a living hope. And we've been given the living Word of God. You know, our faith is not a belief system. It's not faith in, you know, uh, like the, the, the Muslims, you know, they really revere Muhammad the prophet, but he's dead and in the grave. We, we serve a living God. And our faith is, is a living faith. And the Word of God is living and active and sharper than two-edged sword. And we have a living hope. What, what does a living hope mean? Well, it means that our hope isn't a false hope. It's not a, well, I hope I'm going to go to heaven. It, the hope is a living hope because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, His sacrifice for your sin was accepted by the Father. And, and because He rose from the dead, we too have the hope, the real hope, the, 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 the sure hope of resurrection. And so Jesus here is called the living stone. And then he says, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. Now, when you hear the word precious, I always think of precious moments. You know, people have the little cute little statuettes. I think we used to have a precious moments nativity scene and i just i just had a hard time imagining that the you know the stable scene with the animals and the shepherds whatever you know that it, they all look like these precious moments little figurines but it's interesting to me because if you think about it who's the guy that wrote this letter it's peter who was peter peter was a commercial fisherman 
I don't know if you ever watched The World's Dead, Deadliest Catch or whatever, The Dangerous Thing. You know, you watch those shows about those fishermen. Can you imagine one of those guys saying, oh, precious? You don't, do you? You know, you get this big burly fisherman like Peter. Uh, we know in the Bible that he swore, right? He swore before he denied Jesus Christ three times. Um, he was a guy who was kind of impulsive. Uh, he drew a sword. He wasn't afraid to fight. He drew a sword to try to defend Jesus at his arrest. And it's hard to picture a guy, a big burly guy like Peter saying, oh, the precious blood of Christ or, or Jesus Christ, the, the, the living stone who's precious. But you see, that's the transformation that occurred in Peter's life. God transforms people. And he transformed Peter. And Peter looks at Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did. And he says, it's precious. Verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we have Jesus, the living stone. And then Peter says, and you also, as living stones... Why does Peter call you and I living stones? Well, because the source of your and my life as Christians comes from Jesus Christ. We're only alive through Jesus Christ. And so we get our life from Christ. So we are as living stones because our life is based on the living stone. And you know, the interesting thing is, instead of being an individual stone laying on the ground you know, getting weather beaten by the elements and getting worn down. He takes you and I as individual stones. And what does he do? He takes you and I and he builds a temple, a spiritual house with each of us. You know, Christ doesn't just take you and I as, as individuals and clean us up, although he does do that. And he doesn't, you know, polish us up. And, and, and now in, in God's eyes, we look precious. We look you know, we look righteous in God's eyes. Jesus Christ does that stuff. But he doesn't just do it for us to be, just look at this, you know, little nice little Christian right here. What does he do with us? The Bible says he puts us, he, you, we're along, put along with other stones and we're built into a building. Now it's not talking about this building, it's talking about the body of Christ. You see, he uses us together with other stones to make something out of our lives corporately. This last Wednesday night, we talked about, and we were in Ephesians chapter 1, and we talked about the, the importance of community. When I talk about community, I mean the body of Christ. The importance of being a part of the body of Christ. The importance of what we offer, because we're all individuals, we all have different gifts and talents, but Jesus Christ takes us together, puts us in this one group that's called the church, in this case, Calvary Chapel, Rochester, and he's using something with us corporately, together. Individually, we're not that much. But together, God uses us. And so there's just an important reminder about community. And then not only that, it says that he makes us a royal priesthood. I don't know if you understand that, but that means that you and I, we are our own priests before God. I mean, we don't need to go through an intermediary except Jesus Christ, of course, because he's the high priest. But you don't have to go through another man to go to Jesus. You can go straight to the throne room of God. We're priests. And as priests, we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are those sacrifices that you and I offer up as priests? They're spiritual. 
Psalm 51 verse 17 describes one of them. It says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Man, just being humble, being broken before God, that's a sacrifice that pleases God. What else? Hebrews 13 verse 15. We just did it this morning. Hopefully you did it this morning instead of just watching Luke playing guitar or Dave playing guitar or Allie singing. The sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name, that's a, that's a, that's a sacrifice that we can offer up to God who saved us. In verse 16 of Hebrews 13, He's still speaking, the writer of Hebrews is still speaking about sacrifices. And he says this, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. That's another sacrifice we can offer to God, doing good, you know, not sinning, being righteous, um, but also sharing. And that word sharing is the Greek word koinonia, and it means participation in fellowship and community. So you and I, we offer up pleasing sacrifices to God when we participate in the life of the corporate body. When we participate, we share our gifts, our talents, our treasures with one another. God takes us and uses us corporately. That's a sacrifice, the serving, ministering, somebody going back in the nursery saying, you know what? I don't, didn't really want to listen to you this morning anyways. I'll go back there. You know, <laughs> I don't know if that was the case. I'm sure that wasn't the case, but <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> no. But, you know, the, the, just this, you know what? I'm willing to give up my time. I'm willing to give up my comfort. I'm willing to serve. That's a sacrifice that you and I can offer as Christians, and God's pleased with it. God loves it. Romans 12.1, another sacrifice. Paul writes this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Man, our bodies, our lives... You know, every aspect of us, Lord, my body, my life, my dreams, my, the, the things I occupy my time with, this is a sacrifice to you. And God's pleased with that. But you know, of ourselves, or of ourselves, we have nothing to offer God. I mean, he's, it's, it's not like, you know, you were a great catch. God's got, look at this, look at this Christian I got, man. Wow, I'm glad I got him, or I'm glad I got her. No. We're nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Everything that we offer to God is through Jesus Christ. Verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now, Peter here is quoting the Messianic Psalm 118 which talks about Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone is a very important stone in laying a foundation. In fact, that cornerstone is where everything is built off of the cornerstone. And in a building, you have it's in the corner, so two walls are built from the cornerstone, the cornerstone excuse me, two adjoining walls. And uh, God is building a spiritual house on Jesus Christ, who's the chief cornerstone. You remember when Jesus was with the disciples, and he said, hey, who do people say that I am? And some people said, well, you're Elijah. Some people say you're a prophet. And then, and then Jesus said, but, but who do you guys say that I am? And Peter said, man, you're the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus said that, he said, you know, you know, you didn't get this through your natural into it, you know, in, in your brain. You didn't think of this up. It came to you by my Father. My Father revealed that to you. And he says, from now on, I'm going to name you Peter, which Peter means rock. And he says, on this rock I will build my church. And a lot of people say, well, there, Peter, you know, he's the foundation of the church. But that's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying, what, what he was going to build his church on is what Peter professed. What he confessed, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Son of, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the cornerstone that the temple, that the spiritual house, that the church is built on. The testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What are the walls of the two adjoining walls that are brought together, that are built off of the cornerstone? Well, it's the Jews and the Gentiles. They're brought together to make a spiritual house. And you and I, we're living stones. We're part of that spiritual house, the church that God is building. Now, verse 7, he says, Therefore... To you who believe, which would be each one of us here this morning, he is precious. Well, maybe not. I'm, you know, here's a good test for you to see if you're a believer or not. Is Jesus precious to you this morning? Verse uh, 7, continuing, he says, But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the, rejecter, which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. And we know back in the day when Jesus rose from the dead, and the church just started there in, in the book of Acts, all the way up until our day today, Jesus Christ is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense for many, many people. Many people stumble over Jesus because, you know, we say, we, part of the, the gospel message is, you're a sinner and you need to repent of your sins and invite Jesus Christ into your heart. And to ask for forgiveness is to admit that you need forgiveness. And that's a stumbling thing for a lot of people. What do you mean I'm a sinner? I'm a pretty nice guy. I recycle, you know, I, 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 I'm kind to animals. I do all these good things, you know. I have a low carbon footprint. You know, there are all these good things that we can do. And so people stumble over the fact that, no, you're, you're a sinner. And every good thing that you do on your own, Jesus Christ, God looks at it and it's a filthy rag. It's, it's like, ooh, get that out of here. It's, it's not pleasing to me. And he's a rock of offense to many people. What do you mean salvation is only found in Jesus Christ? You're being pretty narrow-minded, aren't you? You know, for the Jews in the first century, they really stumbled over Jesus being the chief cornerstone because they couldn't accept that Gentiles were also part of God's building. The Jewish people said, man, we're it, you know. And, and all, now all of a sudden the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, and that really rocked a lot of Jewish people's worlds. Verse 9, and he's speaking to us as well here. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you, mo- that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We need to understand who we are. Because once we understand who we are, he's going to go into the next step of, okay, now that you have this understanding, how, does, how should you live your life? 
So we need to understand who we are in Christ. First of all, we're a chosen generation. That word generation is the word genos, which refers to kin, or a you know, bloodline, basically, a family, a nationality. And you know, of nationality or a bloodline, you're born into that. And for you and I, we're born into the family of God. In fact, there's no other way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have to be born again. Jesus told uh, Nicodemus that. You must be born again. You must be born into God's family. So we're a chosen generation. We're also a royal priesthood. You and I now have access, direct access to God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. We can at any time go into the throne room and come before our Father. We're also a holy nation. We've been set aside as a people who are governed by God. And then we're His own special people, and that literally means a people for a possession. And what that means is, you know, the Bible tells us that Jesus purchased us with His own blood. And so our lives are not our own anymore. We belong to the Lord. He owns us. And He has indwelled the believer with the Holy Spirit. And God's purpose for our lives and for all these things that He has done for us is what? That we be successful, right? That we be fulfilled, that we be healthy, wealthy, and happy, right? Isn't that God's purpose for your life? No, it's not what it says, is it? God's purpose in doing all these things for us is that we may proclaim His praises. And He says because He's called you and I out of spiritual darkness into His marvelous light. We were spiritually dark. We, had, we, we, were, we didn't discern the things of the Spirit until we entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We were once not a people, but now we're the people of God. And we've now received mercy through Christ Jesus. And so those are the things, that's the, that's the praises that we are to proclaim to the world around us. Look what God's done in my life. You know, it's... God's love and His forgiveness that is our testimony. And you may say, you know, I don't have this wild testimony. You know, I wasn't like an axe murderer before I came to Christ and was on death row and then, you know, Jesus appeared to me and I you know, gave my heart to the Lord. Each one of us has a testimony. Because each one of us, all, none of us deserve salvation. All of us, you know, God took us in whatever state we were at and He... And he, and he and He loved us, and He died for us, and, and gave His life for us. And he, and he called us to be one of His children. We each have that testimony, those of us that have a relationship with the Lord this morning. You know, I don't know if you guys ever watch this television show. I, I don't like like to promote television shows, but this one I think is it's pretty, pretty tame, and, and we like watching it. It's called Shark Tank. You guys ever watch that show? We, we like it anyways. It's, it's pretty entertaining. If you don't know what the show is, basically it's entrepreneurs that they come, they come before these, this, this panel of investors, these billionaire, millionaire investors, and they basically show their product. They peddle their product or their business or whatever, and they're hoping to try to attract these investors to invest in their business so that they can expand or whatever they want to do. And uh, we were watching uh, that show this past week and there was a guy that came out there before the sharks and the shark tank that's what it's called and uh, they had this yoga program and uh, they were you know trying to pitch this yoga program and they've had other people do these exercise programs and everything well they brought out this guy that was like the poster child of their of their yoga program he was a severely disabled vet 
And they took this guy and they brought him, they took him through this yoga training program. And this guy was able to do all these things that, you know, most people that aren't very flexible can't do. You know, I mean, he was able to stand on one foot and he was doing all this stuff. He ran up and down and stuff. And, and he was like the poster child for this business. And, and it was a success story. And it was to draw people to go, wow, if, if, if that works for this person, man, maybe there's hope for me. And so then they buy into that program. In order to convince people to buy their product, they needed a success story. Now, the long story is the sharks didn't enter into their business. That's another story. But, um, but, you know, it's the same for you and I. God has taken your and my life, and he's using it to draw more men and women to him. Our testimony. Our, you know, your testimony may not reach a certain group of people, but there are people that your testimony is going to minister to. Each one of us. And you and I, each one of us, have a story of hope, have a story of reconciliation where God's taken our lives and he's transformed us. And that's why we've been saved. That's why we're still on this planet. Otherwise, you know, Jesus, otherwise it'd be like, you know, every time a person got saved, all of a sudden, poof, they disappeared. They're up in heaven. There's another one that accepted the Lord. No, why? He keeps us here on this planet. Why? So that we can minister to our generation, to the people in our community to the people that we work with, the people in our families, our neighbors. God wants us, and, he's, and he wants to use our lives to minister to others. Verse 11, And so now that we know who we are, now he's going to tell us what we should do here. Verse 11, Beloved, I beg you, I beg you, from the bottom of my heart, I plead with you, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Of these lusts of the flesh, they war against your and my soul. What does that mean to war against? The word is stratomai. It's from where we get the word strategy. And the enemy of your soul and the enemy of my soul has a strategy in place to render you and I preoccupied, to render us weak, to render us defeated, and to render us ineffective for God's service. What is that strategy? It's to compromise a little bit here, a little bit there, with the lusts of the flesh. We sometimes think of the sexual things or the lusts of the flesh. It's not just that. Galatians, I think it's Galatians chapter 5, has a whole list. You can go read it yourself this morning. Get discouraged. No. <laughs> but his strategy is to get us to compromise a little bit here and a little bit there to render us ineffective and defeated as Christians, to rob us of our hope, to, to, to make it to where we don't want to share our testimony because we're not really doing that good. We're not walking with the Lord. We're so busy with other stuff. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So Peter here, he's writing, he says, with the mindset, you know, as sojourners and pilgrims, and we talked about that two weeks ago, what a pilgrim and a sojourner is. As, you know, we're citizens of heaven who are just passing through this life. And Peter begs us to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. Uh, this is an old commentary here, Adam Clark. I, I read it and I thought, man, this is really good. 
So it's old English, kind of. I apologize for that. But it says, As ye are strangers and pilgrims, and profess to seek a heavenly country, and do not entangle yourselves... uh, Okay, let me back up. As ye are strangers and pilgrims, and profess to seek a heavenly country, do not entangle your affections with earthly things. While others spend all their time and all and employ all their skill in acquiring earthly property and totally neglect the salvation of their souls, they are not strangers. They're at home. They are not pilgrims. They are seeking an earthly possession. Heaven is your home. Seek that. God is your portion. Seek him. I thought, well, that's, that really nailed it for me. Peter says here, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so we're to live our lives as a witness to the work of God in us. And, you know, if you get out there into your community, your family, your workplace, your school, whatever it is, and you say, you know what, I'm a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be scrutinized. You might be mocked. You might be marginalized. People might start saying slanderous things about you. But if your and my conduct is honorable, Peter says here the Gentiles are going to glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? Well, there's two different opinions. The day of visitation could be the day of judgment when Jesus Christ visits the earth in judgment. You know, at that point, you know, everything that they said wrong about us will be vindicated because we'll be reigning with Christ. They go, oh, I guess he wasn't such a bad guy. Look at, he's reigning with Christ. The day of visitation, another opinion is that it could be the day of the Gentile salvation. In other words, you know, somebody who's been mocking you and, and, and you, you've just been steadfast in your testimony as a believer and they've been slandering you and saying all this stuff and then all of a sudden they come to faith in the Lord. The Holy Spirit visits them and they become Christians. They look back at your life and go, man, I thank you that you had that rock-solid life, that you didn't compromise because it affected me and that's why I'm a believer today. I've heard that before. Have you heard? I've heard that before. And so... It could be either one. But in any event, whether what it is, whatever that day of visitation is, there is a time coming when God will be glorified by your and my consistent life and testimony. There's going to be a recognition of it at some point. You know, we need to abstain from fleshly lust. We need to live our lives consistently as believers before this world. Verse 13, Therefore... Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. Peter doesn't say, you know, if if you agree with the laws and if you like your government and all that stuff, then, you know, then do what they say. If not, you, you can ignore it. He doesn't say that. He says, obey, submit yourselves to the ordinances of man. And and I have to be honest with you, this is becoming increasingly more difficult for me personally to do with the laws that are being passed by those who are governed us. It's it's getting harder and harder in in our culture, in our government, in our country to do that. And yet, there's no conditions put on it. You, You think of who this is written to. This is written to 
believers in the first century who were under the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, they basically, they taxed the life out of people. And they, they were cruel. And they, you know, life was not easy, especially being a Christian in the Roman Empire. And the Christians, they were getting, they were, they, all these things were being told about them. They're cannibals. And their communion service is a cannibal service. And all these evil things. And they're, 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 you know, they're lazy and all this stuff were spoken about them. And they had a hard life, and, and yet Peter and Paul also tells them to obey the authorities, submit to them. Now, obviously, if a, if a law is passed that causes you and I to sin against God, man, we're to fear and obey God and not man. There, there, there's a point where we go, you know what, I can't obey that law because it's going to cause me to sin. And in that, you're justified. But, but up until then, we're supposed to submit. That's not an easy pill to swallow, but it's true. It's God's word. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. You know, you and I are free in Christ, but we're not free. We don't have the freedom to live after the flesh, but we are free to not sin. We have the freedom to not sin because of Jesus Christ. Before you became a believer, you didn't have that freedom. You were a slave to sin, the Bible says. You had no choice. That was just your nature, and you're going to sin. But now you and I, were free not to sin, but we're also free, but we don't have the freedom to live after the flesh because we were bought at a price. Our life is not our own anymore. Verse 17, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongly. Now, slavery was widespread in the Roman Empire at the time of this writing. And many slaves were coming to Christ. Many slaves were becoming believers in Jesus Christ. And so Paul and Peter, they were writing, well, okay, you slaves, this is how you're to live your life as a Christian. Because, you know, when you and I become Christians, you know, say you're born into a family of unbelievers and you're the only believer in your family, you come to faith in Christ, you know, you're still in your family. You can't, you know, you don't lose your family. You're still there. How do you live as a Christian in the predicament that you find yourself in? And that's what Paul says. These slaves, you're your slave. So how do you live as a slave? And so that what he tells them to is to submit to their masters, even when they're harsh. You know, oftentimes, because we don't have slavery, right? Hopefully we don't. We don't have slavery here. You know, we take these passages and we apply them to our jobs. Man, I'm a slave to my job, you know. And, and uh, so then we took at this and we go, okay, well, if my employer is harsh and unfair, you know, I just I need to patiently endure and, and, and you know, suffer under it and just, and just, you know, hang in there. But it's not. It's written to slaves. But if you're going to take it and you're going to apply it to the workplace, and I've taught that way. I've said, hey, you know, we don't have slavery, but, we, you know, we have jobs. We have employers. So we should be, you know, submit to our employers. If this applied to slaves who had it infinitely worse than any of us have ever had it in our jobs, let's, let's face it. You may think you're, you're, you know, in a slave position, but you're getting paid, right? You're getting paid. You know, there's certain work laws that have to be observed. 
we're not slaves. So if it applies to slaves who had no rights at all, how much more does it apply to you and I who have rights as employees? It, you know, it's that much more of of a impact, or it's that much more of a responsibility for us to live according to what it says here. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example um, that you should follow his steps. I'm sorry, I had a spot there in my notes that was, wasn't filled out. Um, so Peter is saying here, if you suffer patiently while being punished for a wrongdoing you've committed, there's no honor in that because you did wrong and you're being punished for it. Uh, you deserve the punishment. And so it doesn't matter whether you, you know, take it patiently. It's not like, wow, he's really being patient. No, you, you deserve your punishment because you did wrong. But if you suffer unjustly when you did good and then you take it patiently, he says, well, then it's commendable before God. You know, none of us, you know, if you're weird and if you're a lousy employee or whatever and they and they start harassing you or they start threatening your job, um, you know, you're not being persecuted, okay? It's just, you're just not being a good employee. But if you're being the best employee that you can be, you're living like the Lord wants you to live and then you're, you're you know, then it's coming at you and people are, you know, giving you a bad time and everything and your conscience is clear before the Lord, well, that's commendable before God. That's really what Peter's trying to get across. Verse 21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now these pilgrims that Peter is writing to in in the dispersion of Asia Minor, they are soon going to endure some of the most intense persecutions under, uh, I think it's uh, Diocletian, I don't know if I pronounced his name right, but under the next emperor, they were going to suffer tremendous persecution. And Peter is preparing them for for that. And they weren't just left with a bunch of advice to follow. It's just like when you and I read the Bible, you know, when you read these things of how we're to live our lives, you know, you know, the Bible is not just an advice book or a book of do's and don'ts. We have a person in Jesus Christ who is the role model, who fulfilled living a righteous life, and we're to pattern our lives after him. And so we're not just given all these precepts. Well, this is what you do. No, you look at Jesus and his life. How did Jesus live out the scriptures? I'd encourage you to do that. Just look at Jesus' life because he's our role model. What is his role model? Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. When Jesus was beaten, when he was abused, when they heaped abuse upon him, he didn't fight back. He didn't threaten, oh, yeah, I'm going to send all these angels. They're going to wipe you out. No, he didn't do any of that. What does it say? He committed himself to he who judges righteously. That means he surrendered. He put his trust. He get, put his life into the hands of somebody who he trusted, the righteous judge. And if you're going through a difficult time right now, and you're, being, you're going through a tremendous persecution, 
And I know that it happens. And I know that people, you know, sometimes that those attacks, they're very subtle, but it's because sometimes, many times it's because you're a Christian. I want to encourage you, whatever difficulties you're going through, commit it to the Lord. He's a righteous judge. He's a loving judge. And that goes back to the pure milk of the word. You're not going to know those things unless you're reading God's word, unless you're understanding those very basic principles. Man, Jesus loves me. We learned that in Sunday school, right? Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. You might think, well, that's just a little cute little kid thing. But you know what? That's a truth that's going to stick with you throughout life. When you go through the most terrible thing to remember, you know what? Yeah, the world's caving in on me, but I know this. Jesus loves me. Because uh, Jesus is, you know, he's our role model, but you know what? He's much more than just a role model. He's not just someone to pattern our lives after. Verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Not only is Jesus a role model, but he became our sin bearer. He died for our sins on the cross. And when Jesus died for your sins, and when he died for my sins, we died to our sins when Jesus died. You might go, well, that happened 2,000 years ago. But Colossians, Paul wrote this in Colossians 3, 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And it's... You know, it's, it's a hard thing to explain, but once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, you get to this point where you realize when Jesus died, man, he died for my sins 2,000 years ago. He died for my sins. So technically, when he died, I died because I'm identifying with Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's what Peter is talking about. And because he rose again and is now alive, you know, we are now alive in him. And now he died so that you and I could live righteously before God the Father. He did an exchange. He took your and my sin upon himself. He lived the righteous life that none of us could live. And he gave you and I that righteous life. So now when God looks at us, he sees righteousness. And it's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness that Christ lived for us on our behalf that he gave to us when he died on the cross. Verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So that ends chapter 2. And I just want to sum up a couple things that kind of jumped out at me that, that I, I, you know, maybe we can just make this our prayer this morning. But I want to encourage you, think back about it, dwell on it, meditate on it, go to the Lord in it, on it. But get to that point where you start craving the milk of God's Word again. Fall in love with reading the Word of God Fall in love with Jesus. Fall in love with his word. And may we come to Jesus regularly, seeking him intimately, closely. He wants to spend that time. The Bible says that you and I, you know, we're the bride of Christ. And, I, you know, if I uh, came home every day and I just said, hi to Teresa, and I walked in the door and, you know, I just say, hi, Teresa, how are you? Um, I'm fine. I love you. And then that was the rest of the time. I didn't talk to her anymore that evening. And then the next morning, you know, then the evening's like, oh, okay. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm fine. I love you. You know, sometimes our prayer life is like that, isn't it? It's like, Lord Jesus, thank you for this food. Amen. And that's our prayer for the day. Or, Lord, uh, please bless us this day. I love you. Amen. It's like, 
I love you, Jesus. I recognize you're there, but, you know, we'll see you. And then we go about our business. If I did that in my marriage, my marriage wouldn't be very good. It'd be, it'd be pretty strained. We have to spend time with one another to develop, to build, to strengthen that marriage. It's no different with your marriage to Jesus Christ. He wants that fellowship. He wants you and I to come before him. He has so much that he wants to speak to us and he wants to reveal to us and he wants to share to us. But it's up to us to go to him, to spend that time in him. And so I want to encourage us to do that. And may you and I understand who we are in Christ Jesus. We're a chosen generation. We've been born again. We're a royal priesthood. We now have access to the Father. We're a holy nation. Our lives are to be governed by God. And we're his own special people. And may that understanding affect how you and I live our lives during this pilgrimage. And then another thing, you know, may we understand the importance of community and the body of Christ. God uses our lives for his purpose when we're together, much more than when we're apart. And so may we, may we put emphasis and value on the community of the body of Christ. And then finally, may we heed Peter's begging us from his heart that we abstain from fleshly lusts because those are going to drag you down. Those are going to render you ineffective. They're going to steal you of your joy.